I'd like to start off this morning by reading from a newspaper article dated July 21st, 2021. At a little before 8 a.m. Friday, veteran lobster diver Michael Packard entered the water for his second dive of the day. His vessel, the Ja and Jay, was off Herring Cove Beach and surrounded by a fleet of boats catching striped bass. The water temperature was a balmy 60 degrees and the visibility about 20 feet. Licensed commercial lobster divers literally pluck lobsters off the sandy bottom. And as Packard, 56, dove down Friday morning, he saw schools of sand lances and stripers swimming by. The ocean food chain was in full evidence, but about 10 feet from the bottom, Packard suddenly knew what it felt like to be part of that chain. In something truly biblical, Packard was swallowed whole by a humpback whale. All of a sudden, I felt this huge shove, and the next thing I knew, it was completely black, Packard recalled Friday afternoon following his release from Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis. I could sense I was moving, and I could feel the whale squeezing with his muscles in his mouth, he said. And initially, Packard thought he was inside a great white shark, but he couldn't feel any teeth, and he hadn't suffered any obvious wounds. It dawned on him quickly that he had been swallowed by a whale. I was completely inside. It was completely black, Packard said. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. All I could think of was my boys. They're 12 and 15 years old. Outfitted with scuba gear, he struggled, and the whale began shaking its head so that Packard could tell he didn't like it. He estimated he was in the whale for 30 to 40 seconds before the whale finally surfaced. I saw light. He started throwing his head side to side, and the next thing I knew, I was outside in the water. Friends, I promise that happened. That is not from the Babylon Bee. That is from the Cape Cod Times. Michael Packard literally passed through the jaws of death and lived to tell the tale. Believe it or not, friends, this isn't the first time something like this has happened in the world. Of course, the reason the Cape Cod Times describes Packard's experience as something truly biblical is because of what we're about to study together today in the book of Jonah. Jonah, the hard-hearted, rebellious prophet, passed into the jaws of death only to be resurrected again. I'm sure you've heard the story of Jonah and the fish. And yet, friends, Jonah's fishy ordeal isn't ultimately about the fish. It's not about trying to figure out what type of aquatic animal swallowed Jonah whole. Was it a fish? Was it a whale? Was it a sea monster? We're only meant to study the fish to the degree that it directs our gaze to the one who appointed the fish for Jonah's salvation. We're going to discover that although the fish may appear at first to be Jonah's maritime coffin, it turns out to be a divinely sent rescue submarine. At the end of the day, this story of Jonah foreshadows the story of another prophet who was buried and resurrected to rescue his people from certain death. So for those of us connected to Jesus by faith, friends, this story of Jonah's salvation, well, it sounds a lot like our own. Turning your Bibles to Jonah 1 this morning, it's on page 774 of the Bibles underneath your chair. When we left Jonah last week, he had just been hurled into the Mediterranean by sailors on the boat in which he had tried to run from the Lord. And as you remember, the Lord had commissioned Jonah to preach to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Assyria wasn't just a geopolitical enemy of Israel. It was the nation that would actually take the northern kingdom into exile in 722 BC. 
Jonah had no room in his heart for mercy for the Ninevites. He rebelled against the Lord and he ran in the opposite direction of the Lord's call. But friends, Jonah, as we found out last week, could not outrun the Lord. In fact, we saw on the sea an example of God's pursuing his wayward prophet. The Lord hurled, is the language, a storm on the sea that threatened the destruction of the boat and everyone in it. Yet this storm of of the Lord's righteous wrath was actually a storm of his mercy. It was a severe mercy. The Lord proved that he loved Jonah enough not to leave him in his rebellion. We saw that the severe mercy to Jonah was actually a saving mercy to the Gentile pagans who manned the ship. Upon the calming of the sea, after they threw Jonah overboard, the sailors worshiped the one true and living God. The Lord actually had compassion on the very type of men that Jonah did not. And that brings us to our text today. Jonah is in the deep. As far as the sailors could tell, he had drowned. But praise God, that is not the end of the story. Let's pick it up in Jonah 1 verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet... Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, the way the author lays out this section of Jonah is actually easy to see, especially once you look past the chapter divisions. Uh, Remember that the chapter and verse divisions in our Bible were added several hundred years after the canon was completed. They're not inspired, and sometimes, frankly, they're not the most helpful, like with our passage today. I think uh, chapter 1, verse 17 is meant to be read with the content of chapter 2. In fact, you you can't help but notice that chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 10 function like bookends around this text. In 1.17, God appoints the fish. And in 2.10, God speaks to the fish. In 1.17, the fish swallows Jonah. And in 2.10, it vomits him out onto the dry land. And yet smack dab in the middle of these bookend verses that move the plot forward is a prayer. From within the belly of the fish, Jonah prays a prayer of thanksgiving. It's like the author, friends, pushes pause on the narration. The action grinds to a halt. 
Jonah reflects on what just happened to him, and we are invited to step in with him inside the fish and do the same. With Jonah, we as readers are brought face to face with death so that we might see in Jonah a miraculous resurrection. Friends, sometimes the main idea of a section of biblical text is actually in the text itself, and such is the case today. I believe the main idea really is what we find at the end of there, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. My two points this morning follow the structure and direction of the text. Number one, the descent. The descent buried in a watery grave. We see that from verse uh, 17 of chapter 1 all the way to the first part of chapter 2, or of verse 6 in chapter 2. And then the second point is the second part of the poem, the ascent resurrected by a merciful God. Friends, my, my prayer this morning is that we would see in the story of Jonah something more of the stunning mercy and goodness of the Lord, even in the midst of our sin. Friend, even if you've made a mess of your life like Jonah did, even if your sin threatens to pull you under, even if your circumstances make it seem like you're knocking on death's door, friends, today I pray that we will encounter Jonah's God together the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who delights to give resurrection life in the midst of death. Let's look at this first point together, the descent buried in a watery grave. Friends, I think verse 17 is meant to surprise a new reader of the story. Jonah didn't drown in the water after all. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow him. Now, I know for some of you sitting here this morning, this detail uh, in the scripture is hard to believe. And indeed, it does sound unbelievable, right? In fact, to some, this detail seems so sensational that they, they say that the Jonah story must be an allegory. It must be a fictional story that, that points to some other type of reality. You know, perhaps the fish represents something else like the nation of Assyria who later swallowed up Israel and took her into exile. But, but friends, here's why we as Christians don't read Jonah allegorically. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't read Jonah allegorically. As we read earlier in the service from Matthew 12, Jesus accepted the Jonah story as something that actually happened. And he said that Jonah's actual burial and resurrection in the fish anticipated and foreshadowed his own burial and resurrection from the grave. And yet even aside from the interpretation of Jesus, we who embrace a biblical worldview understand our God to be the creator king who made all things and who actively governs all things that he made. So friends, it doesn't surprise us, frankly, we Christians who accept this worldview when we read the scripture and encounter a donkey who delivers God's message, birds who serve as divine DoorDash drivers, or lions obedient to the angels. This is our Father's world. Just as it was nothing for him to hurl the storm upon the sea, it was nothing for the sovereign king to appoint a fish to obediently scoop up his disobedient prophet. The fish did the king's bidding to rescue his servant and ferry him back to the dry land. Friends, whereas Jonah financed his sinful voyage on the ship out of his own pocket, the journey back to land via the fish is free of charge courtesy of the Lord. But not only does the detail that that Jonah didn't drown surprise us, so does the detail that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. 
After all, verse 17 says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Not good, okay? Not, not good. Just think of other instances where God used his creation to swallow up people in the Bible. You remember number 16? When the earth opened up and swallowed the sons of Korah for their rebellion? Yeah, they didn't come back. When God uses his creation to swallow people, he's judging them. And yet, it was by means of this swallow of judgment that the Lord saved Jonah. Jonah was, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Friends, that's long enough he should have died in the fish. But it also means that he didn't stay there. We see in the story of Jonah the pattern of God's salvation that really runs cover to cover in our Bible. It's not just, friends, that God saves from judgment. The way that God saves is through judgment. From Noah and the flood, to Israel and the Egyptians, to the day of atonement, to Jesus on the cross. This is how God saves. He saves his people through judgment. But I think in addition to this pattern, there's another reason that God chose this means of the fish to save Jonah. What if God had rescued Jonah in a fiery chariot like he picked up Elijah? Or what if he sent a giant bird to snatch Jonah after the, out of the water and kind of airdrop him on the land? Well, surely that would not have sent the same signal to Jonah as a fish that swallowed him and then descended further into the deep. Would not have communicated the same message. You see, the Lord sending the fish to swallow Jonah communicated loud and clear that while he is a God who alone can save, there are severe consequences to sin. Jonah's disobedience continued, friends, to propel him downward. Before Jonah could rise out of the abyss, he would have to hit rock bottom. Can you imagine what the experience was inside the fish that Jonah had? He was isolated in a watery tomb. He was surrounded in a claustrophobic darkness. It was wet and nasty and suffocating and stinky. And yet from the depths of the ocean and the depths of distress that arose from Jonah's heart, what arose from Jonah's heart this time was not rebellion, but a prayer. Friends, we didn't see Jonah pray on the ship. The captain invited him to, Jonah declined. The mariners prayed fervently both to their gods and then to the Lord. Jonah remained silent. But now as Jonah descends even further into the cavernous deep, he prays. Jonah's a, a pupil in the Lord's school of suffering. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. A couple things to notice here. First, the text moves from narrative to Hebrew poetry when we move from chapter 1 to chapter Two. In fact, Jonah's prayer really echoes several of the Psalms, including Psalm 18 that we read as our call to worship this morning. It's like Jonah uses the Psalms and poetry to replay the events in a, in a different key, 
to help us see and feel what happened. Verse 2 is the headline summary verse. I called out, God answered. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, you heard my voice. And then the rest of the verses following that summary verse describe further both the crisis and the saving action of the Lord as well as Jonah's response. Second thing to notice, the purpose of Jonah's prayer is surprising. Notice that Jonah does not pray for God to deliver him from the fish. He thanks God for delivering him by means of the fish. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. In other words, friends, Jonah actually prayed two prayers. One is he sank beneath the waves and one from the belly of the fish, thanking God that he didn't drown. Now, we, we don't have the content of that first prayer Jonah prayed, but I'm sure it was something like, help! Help me, Lord. Oh, God, save me. I'm drowning. I've told you before the story of when I almost drowned on, in a lake. I remember praying something similar when I was sinking in the water. I went down two or three times. My muscles were shutting down from fatigue. My frantic shouts to my friend who had swam off without me were interspersed with cries from the depths of my soul for God to preserve me and save my life. I'm so thankful the Lord answered that prayer. Friends, don't make the mistake of thinking that the types of prayers we do here on a Sunday morning that are a little longer, a little more formal, that those type of prayers are the essence of piety. That because they're long and prepared, they must be better. You know, sometimes the best prayers are the short ones. Help, Lord. Forgive me, Father. Oh God, I need you today. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would be a church that feels this type of guttural need. We, we have no resources on our own. We can't help ourselves. We can't grow anyone in the gospel on our own. We can't save the lost in our own strength and power. We can't even love and care for one another well unless the Lord enables us. Oh God, help us. I wish it didn't take a crisis in our lives to make us feel our utter dependence upon the Lord. But often it does. So often our, our pride and our self-sufficiency breed a prayerlessness and a functional godlessness in our daily experience. And we carry on our days as if we have it all under control. We're the, we're the captain of our fate. We work, we parent, we even do the work of ministry on the autopilot of our own resources. Our friends, don't be surprised if the Lord takes you to the end of yourself in order for you to fill your need of him. It could very well be that the, the occasion of the ending of your dream or the declining of your health or the draining of your savings or the losing of your job could be the very place that God intends to meet you and change you so that he can use you for his purposes. Countless Christians can attest to this experience that it was when their life bottomed out that God did his best work in them. It's often been said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. One theologian said it this way, 
whether for Jonah or ourselves. The great wonder of this kind of prayer is that our Lord and his great love toward us condescends to deliver us out of our frequently self-inflicted mess. Here is a God more willing to hear than we are to pray. A God who knows the words on our lips before we speak them, but who longs for us to speak them so that we know he has heard our prayer. Hallelujah. Friends, such was the cry of deliverance from, from Jonah. It was at the lowest place that the Lord met him. Notice how the prayer draws our attention to this. Remember, we talked about this last week, about the undertow of Jonah's sin that, that just drug his spiritual life toward the grave. Remember, he went down to Joppa. He went down into the boat. He went down into the inner part of the ship. Now Jonah has been thrown down into the water by the sailors. And once he hit the water, guess what? That death spiral just continued. In verse 2, Jonah cries to the Lord out of the belly of Sheol. What's Sheol? Well, Sheol is a Hebrew term that described the grave. It was the realm of the dead. It was, it was pictured in the ancient Near East as the underworld. It's a place that you don't want to go. It's the place of divine punishment where the ungodly meet their fate. Clearly, Jonah is speaking of Sheol as a metaphor for his experience, but he recognized that his experience took him all the way to the gates of death. He's speaking of his death as if it already was there, as if he's already in Sheol. Friends, we also know that in ancient Near Eastern mythology, the sea was a place of chaos and evil, and even where the great battles between good and evil took place. So by being cast into the sea, it's like, it's like Jonah just pictures himself being surrounded on all sides by the forces of chaos and evil and death. Look how he describes his plight in verse 3. He describes himself as being in the deep, in the heart of the sea, surrounded by the floods with waves and billows passing over him. Friends, these images aren't just aquatic. They're clearly picturing Jonah still descending. Even though Jonah in verse 4 acknowledges his desire to pray and approach God's temple, he feels that he's being driven away from God's sight. And notice the downward pull in verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Friends, the seaweed had become Jonah's grave clothes. He was being entombed in a watery grave, even to the point of descending to what verse 6 calls the roots of the mountains. That's where Jonah hit rock bottom. It's as low as you can go. The roots of the mountains at the bottom of the sea's floor are the gateway to the grave. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So far gone was Jonah that he pictured himself within the prison of Sheol with death's bars closed down upon him, ready to shut him in for good. And here's both the, the terrifying and simultaneously comforting truth. Jonah knew that it was God who would send him there. In verse 3, he acknowledges that even though the sailors cast him overboard, really they were the secondary cause. He writes, speaking of the Lord, for you cast me into the deep. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then he said, I am being driven away from your sight. 
Friends, Jonah's, Jonah's confession is terrifying because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, as Hebrews 10 says. Yet it's simultaneously comforting because the Lord took Jonah to the place where only he could bring him up. Jonah could not defeat death on his own. He needed the Lord to swallow up death for him. Beloved, it was only at this very low point of Jonah's misery that he freshly discovered the faithfulness of the Lord. He discovered once again the beauty of grace. Jonah realized that on his own, he could not escape death. But he also found out that he could not escape God's gracious presence. Jonah ran from God and yet ended up meeting God in Sheol. Jonah is living out in real time the truths of Psalm 139, 7 to 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Who needs to hear this word today? Friend, have your sin and circumstances caused you to doubt God's intentions for your life? Friends, the Lord cast Jonah into the deep, but he followed him there. Jonah tried to evade God's presence, but God followed him all the way down to the gates of death. It was there that God renewed Jonah's life and set him on a path again to be used by him again. Friends, don't think he'll do anything less for you. We're tempted to read the story of Jonah and, and kind of react with the humor that we read in the, in the Michael Packard story. And when I read that Michael Packard story, it was like, what? No way. That happened? That's kind of, I feel like sometimes when we read the Jonah story, that's how we react. But friends, this, this story is, is so much more than the whimsical portrayal that you see in your kid's children's storybook. Here we see a man descending into the realm of the dead only to encounter the God of life. Friends, Jonah is teaching us the nature of gospel grace. We, like him, deserve to be condemned in Sheol's prison. We, like him, can't do anything to save ourselves. We, like him, stand need of a rescue. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, Friend, Jonah's descent, it, it pictures your life and it pictures all of our lives without God. Uh, so often we think that we can handle our problems. We can fix ourselves. We got this. You know, even the most self-sufficient humans know that they have problems. They know they have issues. They just think they know the solution. But friends, the Bible presents our deepest need as far graver and far greater than we could ever handle on our own. Just think about how utterly helpless we humans are. We suffer, and so we think, oh, it's nothing a little advanced technology can't help. We live in pain and emptiness, and so we think, ah, I'll just numb the pain with some pills or, some, or a bottle. 
that'll work. We think, oh, I've got issues. I've made a mess of things, but you know what? I'll just atone for my mistakes by becoming the best me I can be. I'll devote myself to philanthropy or community service. I'll, I'll invest in my kids to prove to them oh, that, that mom or dad is, is really a good person. But friends, don't you see that humanity's deepest need and greatest problems are far greater than technology or pills or alcohol or religion or money or pleasure can fix? The scripture describes humanity not just as having issues, but as being dead spiritually in trespasses and sins. We live in rebellion against our creator. We have really what we've done is committed cosmic treason against our king. And for that reason, we need a pardon from the king of the universe that none of us can attain on our own. Friends, you can no more pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps and self-atonement and it work then you can swim up from the bottom of the Mariana Trench. What's more, not only can we not fix our sin problem, we cannot overcome death, sin's penalty. We all will one day stand like Jonah at the gates of Sheol. We too will sense the bars closing in. Friend, what will be your hope then? You see, you like Jonah... You don't need a fix. You need a rescue. You need a resurrection. And that leads us to our second point and the second part of this prayer, the ascent, resurrected by a merciful God. Friends, the descent of Jonah, it, it pivots on a dime in the middle of verse six. Remember, we've been on this downward trajectory ever since Jonah rebelled and ran. God took Jonah to the lowest place to reveal himself to him there. Jonah cried from the depths and the Lord answered. Look at verse six. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up, up my life from the pit. Oh Lord, my God. Jonah's rebellion had brought him low. God's mercy will raise him up. In chapter one, uh, Jonah's confession to the sailors on the deck of the ship was that he feared the Lord. He feared Yahweh, the God of heaven. But now Jonah's experience had caused him to reclaim the Lord as his God. Did you see that in the verse? He's not merely the God of the Hebrews. He's Jonah's God. Oh Lord, my God. Jonah was submerged in the waves, but now he was drenched in the Lord's kindness. God had raised him up. You might ask, how could, how could Jonah be so confident of God's salvation as he prayed from the dungeon of the fish's belly? You know, my, my guess, friends, is that it has something to do with the fact that, you know, this type of thing was no more common back then than it is now. Jonah had fixed his gaze. Let me back up, excuse me. Jonah had prayed as he sank beneath the waves. And so now that he didn't drown and he was scooped up by a sea monster of some sort, and he lived, he must have figured this is the work of the Lord. He answered my prayer. Jonah continues to praise the Lord for his salvation in verse 7. Jonah acknowledges that even though his, his life was ebbing away, his prayer did not. He remembered the Lord. His prayer reached the place of the Lord's abode in his holy temple. 
Jonah had fixed his gaze there in verse four on the holy temple. And now he confesses that his, his prayer, it's arrived at the Lord's holy temple. God heard, God answered. And as Jonah's prayer begins to ascend, so does his confidence. Did you notice that? Jonah's prayer moves from despondency and pleading to thanksgiving and now to a firm resolve in verse eight. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I think this is the most confusing verse in the whole thing. What is Jonah talking about? Who's in his mind as, as the ones who pay regard to false gods and so forfeit God's mercy? Is he, is he recalling in his mind the mariners on the deck of the boat who each called out to their own gods before they turned to fear the Lord? Is it an oblique reference to himself and to his own rebellion? Well, friend, I think the key word is what is translated in our Bibles as steadfast love. It's the word chesed in the Hebrew. All throughout the Old Testament, it describes God's special covenant love for his people. And remember, Jonah ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel during a time of apostasy and idolatry. I think it's likely that he thanks God for his own deliverance and his experiences of God's power and mercy in saving him. And when he does that, he's reminded that when unfaithful, covenant-breaking Israel forsakes the Lord, they likewise forsake his salvation. They, like Jonah, would be exiled from the land for their idolatry. In verse 9, Jonah contrasts himself from the unfaithful, which is Deeply ironic, is it not? Jonah was a far cry from a paragon of virtue, but God had rescued him and it was in the process of changing him by grace. He's got a long way to go. We're going to find that out in verse, uh, chapters 3 and 4. Remember verse 2, Jonah cried out with a voice, a voice of desperation from Sheol. And now in verse 9, he anticipates his voice. His voice of thanksgiving, presumably at the temple, as he offers sacrifices to the Lord, he pays what he's, what he's vowed. Jonah had sunk to the roots of the mountains, and now he commits himself to sacrifice, presumably to ascend the mountain of the Lord, to worship him at the temple. If you look carefully, you'll see that Jonah 1 and Jonah 2 really run on parallel tracks. Both had a crisis, the storm at sea in chapter 1 and drowning in chapter 2. Both had a response of prayer, the sailors in chapter 1 and Jonah in chapter 2. Both evidenced a rescue by the Lord, a deliverance from the storm in chapter 1 and deliverance from Sheol in chapter 2. Both times, those who were saved responded and worshiped and sacrificed and paying vows, the sailors in chapter 1 and Jonah in chapter 2. Why notice that? Well, friends, I think these similarities highlight how the Lord works. Jonah's creed at the end of verse 9 sums it up. I love this. His, his prayer crescendos with a shout, salvation belongs to the Lord. To Yahweh belongs deliverance. Friends, these words by Jonah are in many ways the central message of the entire book. It's the white-hot core of what we're meant to take from this, from this book. It waves like a banner over every single chapter. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not stretching it too far to say that this banner flies over the entire Bible. Who is the one who saves? 
It's the Lord and him alone. Jonah's deliverance pictures this so clearly. He was helpless. He was hopeless. He was as good as dead. But God. But God. Friends, salvation is not a matter of God saving you 90% of the way and then that, well, that last 10%, that's kind of your doing. No, from start to finish, from first to the last, from election to glorification, from eternity past to eternity future, salvation belongs to the Lord. We cannot save ourselves even a little bit. The Lord doesn't need your cooperation, friend, to save you. He'll give you all you need to respond to Him. It's all of Him. It's all of grace. Yesterday, I just, I just happened upon the resources website of an evangelical leader. After seeing a Twitter ad, I clicked on it and wound up at this, this site. And on the very first page of his resource section was a sermon from Jonah 2. I wasn't looking for it, but there it was. The sermon title of Jonah 2 was, You Can't Keep a Good Man Down. And the sermon outline explained how Jonah was able to get out of the fish's belly. Here's how he got out. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of purpose. He was a man of praise. He was a man of perception. The point of the sermon was, this is how Jonah got himself out. And I say, no way. You've just turned the entire thing upside down. The point is that Jonah didn't do anything, and that God did everything. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, that means that if God wants to demonstrate his salvation to the brutal Ninevites, he'll do that. If he chooses to save the pagan sailors, well, he'll do that. If he purposes to save his wayward prophet from the gates of hell, he'll do just that. Salvation is in his hand to give, it's in his possession. He's the author and finisher. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the first and the last, the one who began the good work and the one who will complete it in us. Friends, our hearts with Jonah should crescendo in thanks to such a God that he, because of nothing but sheer grace, set his saving love on us. He included us as his new covenant people by virtue of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. That's why the song of Jonah, it's our song too. Verse 10 concludes, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Friends, I I hope by now it makes sense why Jesus interpreted the story of Jonah typologically, typologically. Not allegorically, but typologically. We see in the deliverance of Jonah the patterns of, of salvation through judgment, of resurrection life through death. Jesus understood Jonah to be a type that pointed to himself. What does that mean? Well, it means that this event in Jonah's life was, a, was part of a divinely orchestrated pattern of Jesus' own burial and resurrection from the dead. He told the Pharisees in Matthew 12 that even though they in their unbelief demanded a sign to prove that he was heaven sent, The only sign they needed was the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in 
was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, Jesus' his death, his burial, his resurrection were all they needed to know who he was. So what does this mean for our own interpretation of Jonah? How do we look at this Old Testament passage through the lens of the New Testament? It means that the ultimate significance of Jonah's three-day journey in the belly of the fish is not merely his own burial and resurrection, but how it anticipates an even greater burial and resurrection of the one who indeed is greater than Jonah. Friends, our great hope this morning to which the story of Jonah points is is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we confess this morning in the the Apostles' Creed. Jesus, the sinless one, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended, like Jonah, to the dead. He entered the realm of the dead, not on account of his own sin, like Jonah, but on account of ours. On the cross, our Lord Jesus cried out like Jonah, but it was a cry of anguish never before imagined or never equaled since. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus descended to Sheol so that would not be our destination finally and fully. He endured separation from God so that we might be reconciled to him. To use the Jonah language, he took our place in the watery grave. Brothers and sisters of Redeeming Grace Church, this this condescension of Jesus to the lowest place, even to the realm of the dead, friends, this is unspeakably good news to us today. Maybe your circumstances, they, they feel like a close match to Jonah's when you look at your life. Maybe it's a personal crisis of your own making. Maybe not. But you feel this morning as if you've descended to the darkness. The stench of death is near. Beloved, it's in Christ's suffering that we find our greatest comfort. It's in his wounds that we find our deepest healing. Listen to the words of the Heidelberg Confessions question reflecting on this aspect of the, the Apostles' Creed. Why does the Creed add he descended into hell, speaking of the realm of the dead. The answer, to assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but also earlier, delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Struggling saint looked at Jesus He bore the curse of sin. He drained the dregs of of the cup of God's wrath. You know, I know I've said this before, probably several times, but it's worth saying again, because of what Jesus has done, the worst pain and suffering you'll ever experience is in this temporal life, not in what awaits you. And because of what Jesus has done, our current joys Well, those are just a fractional taste, the feast of eternal joys that awaits us with him in glory. Jesus' descent to the dead assures us that he's with us in our pain. 
His love undergirds us even when sorrows like sea billows roll. Like with Jonah, our God will meet you in that low place. He will sustain you and he will raise you up by his mercy. But friends, we can trust in God's power to deliver. Not only because he descended to the realm of the dead, but because he ascended from it. We confess that on the third day, he rose again from the dead and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Make no mistake. It may have appeared that the Father didn't hear the Son's prayer from the cross. It may have appeared that that Jesus' prayer rebounded from heaven when he screamed into the, the black night on Golgotha's hill. It may have appeared that although the Lord answered Jonah's prayer, well, he just didn't answer Jesus' prayer. The friend's appearance, praise God, doesn't always equal reality. It was Friday, but Sunday was coming. You want proof that the Father answered Jesus' cry of dereliction from the cross? All you got to do is listen to the words of the angel to Mary. Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. It may have appeared that the father left the son hanging. It may have looked like Jesus was abandoned to the place of the dead. But the empty tomb is all the verification that you need that the father heard the son's cry, just like he heard Jonas. He did not abandon his soul to Sheol, nor did he let his Holy One see corruption. And here's the good news, beloved. Every one of us united to Jesus by faith share in his triumph. Not because you can't keep a good man down, but because death couldn't hold Jesus down. Just as sure as Jonah's death was swallowed up by the fish, for those of us in Christ... Death is swallowed up in victory. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Friends, salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you that you heard Jesus' cry out from the depths. And because of that, you hear ours. We praise you that we see in, our, in Jonah, this flawed and even this rebellious man, a picture of our own descent to the grave and yet our own resurrection in the Lord Jesus. Oh, Father, shape us and mold us, we pray. Sometimes the best thing we can do at a passage like this is not necessarily do this or don't do that, but just to stand in awe and to worship you because of what you've done for us in Christ. And so we do that this morning through our next song. We do that as we come to the Lord's table. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.